All right. One of these days, I'll probably get to where I can use the fancy over-the-ear thing and have extra hands to use. But today, I just got to hold on to it. Um, my thanks, as always, go out to Lee for the opportunity to share when he is not here. And uh, uh, we wish he and his family the best as they're out on vacation. Um, and thanks to Matt and the worship team. I've heard people say quite a lot recently. Well, it's just a lot, period. But recently, it seems like there's um, an, an air of worship that is uh, more intense, uh, more intimate. I'm not quite sure exactly how to describe it. But thank you, Matt and the worship team, and those members who are there, they're not on rotation today. Uh, it does a great deal to lead me into the spirit of worship. Um, scripture says, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Can I get an amen for that? Is this a good day? It really is. I mean, that should be our prayer every day. But to be honest, there's something about today that's different. It's something that I can't quite put my hands on. I, I got to think about this a little bit. It's something that's just that's special about it. Wait a minute. I think there's an audio clip that we have ready to go. Could we have the audio clip? The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. Baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. Can I get an amen? All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. You know, um, I've, I've had several thoughts as I put that together. One thought is I'm going to get just tremendous joy and amens from a lot of people. Then there's going to be some in the audience. I'm not going to look at their direction, but they would be just nodding off and going to sleep. In fact, just now listening to that again, you know, there's the crickets chirping in the background. And those of you that have seen Field of Dreams, you know, it's just the most beautiful scene right then when uh, James Earl Jones is giving his little monologue there. But I'm hearing the crickets, I'm hearing the, the chirping and the insects, I'm going, that's just lovely. And the others are going, that's sleep-inducing. So either way you want to look at it. So why did I pick something like that? Well, a couple of reasons. One is, I'm a, I'm a huge baseball fan. I mean, I'm still living, every time a YouTube video pops up that says the Rangers' highlights of last year, especially game seven when they beat the Astros and game seven when they beat the D-backs. I just love baseball. And tomorrow is the first day of full spring training for the Rangers. Now, yep, thank you. I knew I'd get a hand clap there somewhere. Uh, it's, it's not just the Rangers alone. I mean, um, it's, it's teams all across Major League Baseball. And last week on Wednesday, uh, pitchers and catchers could report for duty and things of that nature. So I just love baseball. And what this marks for baseball, in its particular case, since it's a start, is a very long journey to a potential World Series championship. Now, all the major sports teams, leagues rather, they have their own particular journeys. They are different lengths. Last week, we saw the end of a journey for teams, two teams in, in particular, uh, to the NFL championship. And so that got me to thinking, how long are these different journeys to championships? 
So let's take the NFL, for example. How many games are there in the regular season? Anybody know? 16. There's 17 weeks, but 16 games because you have an off week. Okay, then I'm wrong. I'll go back and do my... <laughs> throw that one away into the thing. But the point being is it's very short. And then how many games are there in the playoff run? Four, I think. Work with me. Work with me. It'll work good. Okay, in the National Hockey League, all together, all you hockey fans, sit down. We don't really care. <laughs> There's 82 regular games, regular season games, and if each playoff game, a series, goes the full seven games, then that means there are uh, 28 playoff games possible, and so that means 110 games through the season. Now, there's the National Basketball Association, which is very similar. They have 84 regular season games and then 28 potential, if all go seven games in the playoffs, to lead to 112 games. All right, so from arguably 20 games in the NFL to 110 to 112 in the other two sports. But baseball, 162 regular season games. 22 playoff games, including wild card and the different series links. The maximum could be 22 games for a season of doing the math here, 184 games. And some would say that's 183 too many, but that's not the point. We love baseball. So those are arguably interesting ways to think about journeys, treks. Actually, I didn't get around to it. I thought about it, and I thought, no, that's pushing it too far. Images of famous journeys through life or through history or through literature, for example. If I said to you, Dorothy, Tin Man, Scarecrow, and Lion, what would their journey be? To Oz, the journey to Oz. Okay, what if I said Frodo, Bilbo, well, Bilbo wasn't there. Frodo, Gandalf, Aragon, what's that the journey for? The ring, the fellowship of the ring, and they're on a, on a great trek. Speaking of treks, do we have any admitted trekkies here? Because there is a trek to the stars. Yeah, Star Trek. So journeying is, is a, a common thought. Uh, it's not unusual whatsoever. And that's what leads me to kind of set the groundwork for today's discussion about a particular journey. And I hope that it brings some new insight and some new um, awareness and thoughts for you as we do this. It starts in Luke 9.51. Now, this is not going to be an expository sermon where we take a long passage and dig deeply into it. It's more of a topical, helping you to think about your own particular, eventually, journey in life. So when we read in Luke 9.51, we see the following. As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, Wednesday, I mentioned that was the day Pitchers and Catchers report this last Wednesday, was also another day in the Christian calendar. It was called Ash Wednesday. Tuesday was called Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday. But then Ash Wednesday marks a 40-day journey, if you will, of Lent for those who follow that in their, uh, their uh, church traditions leading up to Easter. And so the idea of travel, journeying, moving, going forward is very significant. 
Now, is there something different about this? This is, I've, I've thought about this verse off and on through the years as I've done my own particular readings about Jesus' uh, last days, his last week. And it, it comes around to that particular wording of, of verse 91, uh, 51. Read it one more time. As the time approached for him to pay, take into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So let's take that phrase. That's the NIV's version to say resolutely set out. I went through and looked at uh, one of the things I like about the electronic uh, versions of Bibles we have the, uh, uh, on our different devices is you can very quickly flip to another translation to see how different translators will put these things together. So the New Living Testament says the same thing. It agrees with the NIV, resolutely set out. The ESV says Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Uh, King James and the New King James are the same. They say it exactly the same. They add the word steadfastly, that Jesus steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem. The Holman Christian Study Bible says uh, he determined to journey. The Common English Version says he made up his mind. And then there's one that I don't refer to often. I just kind of do it, I won't say out of fun. Uh, it's called the Plain English Version. I would never preach from the Plain English Version. But it, boy, does it put new light on it because the translators just put it in good old Plain English. There's no scholasticism around it. And this is what the Plain English Version said. Jesus wasn't going to let anything stop him on the way to Jerusalem. Now that communicates. So you put all those together and you go back and relook at that once again. What is the, what's the sense that is communicating in those few little words, no matter which translation you use, about Jesus going to Jerusalem? I get a little sense of climax. It's almost as if there's a turning of the corner, never to be turned back. And I really like it at this particular place, the plain English version, when it says he made up his mind nothing was going to stop him. So what was he going toward? He was going to the city of Jerusalem, but what was awaiting him? Death. The cross. Now, the NIV says he approached, the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. And that's going to be the end result of all of this. But before that's the cross and all that that entailed. And each year during, Christmas, during Easter time, we have sermons that explain very, very vividly and very graphically and horribly what the cross was like for Jesus. But there's another sense of kind of turning the corner. Uh, one author that I consulted uh, put it in a way that helped me to understand it a little bit better, that chapter 9 in Luke is not the midpoint chapter. Um, it's actually about a third of the way into the book of Luke. But this sense of turning and change is what is being brought out here. For instance, if you do a bird's eye view of Luke, and where I love Bibles when they have the little subheadings when you go through the different chapters, you start looking at those subheadings and what you see in the first eight chapters or so of Luke is beginnings. What do we have in Luke 2? The birth. That's the beginnings. Uh, Luke 1 is the annunciation to Mary that she was going to bear the Messiah. Um, we get his baptism. We get his temptations uh, by uh, Satan. And we get the first two and a half years or so all compressed into those first eight chapters of 
his ministry. And one author pointed out, again, I think very appropriately, that those first eight chapters centered, if you will, a base of operations, if you will, in Galilee. And then as you go further into chapter 9 then, now he turns and sets his eyes to Jerusalem. No longer is Galilee the center of his his, uh, ministry. Um, If the first few chapters, first eight chapters, were talking about Jesus' coming and Jesus' preparation of the disciples, now it's Jesus' going. And there's still preparation of the disciples that go on in this. One other author phrased it as, now this indicates a firm, unshakable resolve. Unless you think that, how do we say this? I struggle with this a little bit to be able to put it in words that, that communicate well. Jesus was fully human and Jesus was fully God. I'm, I'm winging it here now. I'm going off script. Fully human, fully God. Fully human, he knew what was ahead of him. It had already been said, and we'll come to that in just a few moments about some more scriptures that point about him knowing exactly what was ahead of him. And so did the fact that he was fully God diminish his understanding as fully human about what lay ahead of him? In other words, was he afraid? I don't know the answer to that. But it's worth us to think in terms of Jesus and what he did on this earth including all the emotions that were possible for him, for, that we have as humans, he experienced as well. That, to me, simply puts it in a little bit greater, a little bit better, a little bit more forceful idea of him understanding, and yet he fully determined, as the plain English version said, he made up his mind nothing was going to turn him away, turn him aside. He did know that his death was imminent. If you're still in chapter 9, look back at verse 22. I believe it'll be on the screen, hopefully. 9, 21, and 22. He strictly warned them not to say this to anyone. This is right after Peter's great pronouncement that you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus warned them very strictly, don't tell anybody about this. And then verse 22 and he said, the Son of Man must, stu- uh, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day ra- be raised to life. That's it. That's all he says. He says it clearly. They're gonna be re- he's going to be rejected by the leaders. He's going to be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, all of those who are, in, who are in charge, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then a little bit later, as the narrative continues over still in chapter 9, we get to verse 43. Oh, and in between this, kind of key, in between these two sayings that he's telling them about his death, we have the transfiguration. Interesting placement of him telling them he's going to die with the transfiguration in there. He heals a demon-possessed boy, and in verse 43 says, when they were... And they were all amazed at the greatness of God, being that healing of a demon-possessed boy. And then while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him. 
On the first time that he said this about his impending death, he just says it. Here's what's going to happen. This time he adds, listen carefully. Listen very carefully to what I'm going to tell you. But they didn't get it, which to me implies they didn't get it the first time and they didn't get it this time either. And you don't have it. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but let me get to another. He actually says it a third time as well. This is just before he gets into Jericho on his last, just prior to the triumphant entry in in Jerusalem. Jesus took the 12 aside and he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be uh, fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Well, they got it now, didn't they? No. Verse continues, the disciples did not understand any of this. It's meaningless hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. I don't understand that. I don't understand how he could say clearly this is what's going to happen. And you notice from the first to the second to the third repetitions of him saying this is what's going to happen to me, it gets increasingly intense to the point that this last time he says, beat me, flog me, spit on me, kill me. It's, it's intense, but they still just didn't get it. So that's why I think one of the interesting things about this decision to go on to Jerusalem to continue with no turning back is the increased need for him to just, as we say, kick it up a notch, the teaching and the training of his disciples. Because after this point, from this verse 51 onwards, opposition increases, Uh, opportunities to train and to form this, this, uh, we call it the apostolic band of the disciples, the band of disciples, the intensification of his teaching continues. If we go on with that bird's eye view, looking into chapters 10 and forward, uh, several more chapters, we see Jesus talking about what it's going to cost to be one of his followers. We see him sending out that band of 72 to do ministry in his name, and they come back glorifying God for what has happened. We see these wonderful parables. We see the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the, we call it the prodigal son, but we know it better as well by the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy. We see the parable of the rich fool who said, uh, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And, Jesus, and the Lord says, no, you got it wrong. Tomorrow you're going to die. You see the uh, parable of the uh, rich man and Lazarus, the parable of the coming kingdom, the the story of the rich young ruler. Some of the greatest teachings that we see in uh, Luke's version of the gospel are happening after this decision to turn his face and set his face towards Jerusalem with no turning back. And so the intensification of forming and training these disciples really picks up. So Jesus knew what lay ahead of him. I'd like to suggest four things just in quick order. He knew that opposition was ahead of him. Opposition had already been there. We know that. And the other gospels, by the way, uh, bear out the same thing. But it's this corner turning, as Luke describes it, that makes it look this way, that the opposition increases. He faces distractions. And I'm going to suggest something that I think is a great distraction could have been a great distraction to Jesus. You remember back in his temptation account, uh, both either Matthew's or Luke's, they both say the same things in different orders. One of the temptations was for Jesus 
to look out across and see all the nations of the world and Satan saying to him, you can have all that. You can have all that. Just bow down and worship me. And of course, we know Jesus said, no, that's not the way it's going to be. Now, fast forward to this point in time, as Jesus is physically and symbolically getting closer and closer to Jerusalem and the cross, and he goes through Jericho, and there's the healing of what we call him by name blind Bartimaeus, and the, the uh, salvation of Zacchaeus, all in Jericho. And then he takes that road that goes up into Jerusalem, and he goes into Jerusalem after spending the night outside. And what happens? What do the crowds do? They gather, and they gather palm branches, and they start singing Hosanna to the king. Our king is entering into Jerusalem. We call it triumphant entry. And it was a magnificent time. Would that be a distraction to your perceived ministry, to your perceived end? I think it very well could be. Look at what these people are saying about me. Look at what's happening here. It, it, it could have very easily, except it didn't, because Jesus had already made up his mind, the cross and the return to heaven. It doesn't negate the fact that it could have been a time of great distraction, he did have those opportunities to ministry. And I repeat again what happened in Jericho with the blind Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. And there were other healings too between chapters 10 and 19 when he gets into Jerusalem. And so the opportunities to ministry to minister still kept on going as he was making his journey. And last of all, there were misunderstandings about what it meant to be a disciple. Uh, keep your finger or eyes on verses 57 and following. We'll come back to that in just a moment. As I've read through this and have been thinking about uh, this time of Jesus' life, uh, it helps me in a lot of ways to, in a, in a sense, to put myself in the same position as the disciples, to be there with Jesus. I guess that means I'm a visual learner. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but I tend to remember things that I have seen. And uh, I, I can imagine myself. It's kind of like I have my cinema of the mind. I have my own version of the chosen, I guess, that's replaying in my own mind. And what it would have been like to see and to be there with Jesus and to see him knowing that he set his eyes to Jerusalem with no turning back and seeing what has happened or what is happening as he's making this journey. And then, of course, they didn't know the... They knew the, he had been told about the cross, but they didn't understand about it. So all of this became clear, obviously, after the fact. But we're in the midst of it right now. And so that's where I want us to, to pivot just for a moment and say, so what does that mean for us? What, what does a scripture passage like this mean for any of us? I'd like to suggest that, again, because Jesus faced and encountered the same kind of emotions and um, humanity as we are and do, that if those things were common to him, if those were part of his journey to Jerusalem, I think it could be easily said that that's part of our journey as disciples. As we go through our journey as his disciples and just simply to call it our journey to discipleship. I think in a sense, it would be very simple to say that as we are on our journey as disciples of Jesus, we'll face opposition as well. Uh, we'll have people in our lives that will ridicule us for what we are doing as Christ followers. 
We may even have people that attack us for being Christ followers. Um, I don't know your lives, you don't know mine, but I think it's safe to say that in the world we live in now, the culture we live in in the United States now, it would not be unusual for me and you in our discipleship and our journey of discipleship to face opposition, to face attack, to face criticism, to face ridicule. And if that's the case, then I'm called back to Jesus' decision. He set his eye on a goal, on an end, and he was not going to be deterred. And likewise, I have set my eyes on a goal, and that's to become more like Christ on my uh, journey of discipleship. I ask myself, is there anything that could deter me from that? Is there anything that could happen in my life that would make me give that up and turn it away? I'd say right now, no, there's not. And yet it doesn't mean that there would not be attacks, that there would be opposition. Um, I think they could very easily be distracted, as Jesus could have been, from his eventual journey. What those distractions would be, that's up to each one of us personally to define. But to be distracted and to be diverted away from our full focused attention on growing as a disciple of Jesus. And then, of course, opportunities for ministry. Uh, That's a big part of what we do as disciples. As we are on this journey to Jesus, we have many opportunities to minister. And we see that. We talk about that as a church frequently, different opportunities to serve as we are on this journey. But then we're going to go back to, I said we'd come back to it in just a minute, to verse 50. Seven, And I want to suggest that our commitment to Jesus has got to take first place over anything else. He has three encounters. Now, let's, let's go back before we get to the three encounters and go through this quickly again. I get the sense that these, the events in these verses are taking place in rapid order. Um, sometimes you can see that because the Scripture will say, use the word immediately after or or then this happened, and it's a sense of quickness. Excuse me a minute. So as Jesus, back to our key verse in verse 51, he made up his mind, and he sent messengers ahead onto Samaritan village. He encountered opposition. <clears throat> the disciples wanted to kill them all, and Jesus rebuked them. Then it says, then he and his disciples went to another village. Okay, then... He and his disciples went to another village. Verse 57, as they were walking. Now, do you see where I'm coming from? A sense of things happening. Then they moved on. And as they were walking, as they're moving along, the next part happens. Now, you use your own cinema of the mind. You're walking with a group of disciples and others, would-be disciples, and suddenly... A person, Jesus just simply, Luke just simply says, a man, says, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. And we would say, amen, we got another disciple following Jesus. Jesus doesn't criticize him. Jesus doesn't say no. Jesus doesn't say you don't understand. But he does say something. He turns to the man, or he replies, foxes have dens and birds have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What in the world does that mean? What in the world? Well, it tells us the cost, that there is a cost to following him. It's a simple declarative statement. 
He doesn't say to the man, you're not capable. He just says, let me tell you that there is a cost to following him. And my friends, I would say to each one of us, if you have never examined the cost of following him, it's a good thing for us to do is to think about the cost of following him. There is a cost. And then as almost immediately, another one spoke, uh, he turns to another person. Now you get this. He says, I'll follow you where you're going to go. Jesus replies. Then I get the sense that he turns to another person because he says to this second person, you follow me. This one says he wants to follow me. Will you follow me? And what does the second one say? Uh, Lord, first let me go home and bury my father. Sounds like a legitimate request. I'll be glad to follow you. I understand there'll be a cost, but let me go home and bury my father. And then Jesus does what he does frequently. He gives a, a comment that's shocking to our ears. He says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. For that man whom Jesus said, well, you follow me too. That's the cost. Is you give me your wholehearted devotion. That's going to take care of itself. You give me your devotion. Did he do it? We don't know. And then immediately, it still sounds like, just like boom, 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 three comments. Another voice comes up in verse 61. He says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. You know, I kind of get the, not the feeling, but the impression that as they're walking along, one says, well, I'll do it. And then Jesus says, well, what about you? Are you going to do it? And then another one says, well, I'll do it. Those two may not do it, but I'll do it. But I need to go home and bury my, uh, need to go home and say goodbye to my family. Now, we are in 21st century North Central Texas, East Parker County. That sounds like a perfectly legitimate request to me. Let me go home and say goodbye to my family. Let me get my things in order. Let me get my affairs in order. Uh, let me pack my bags. Let me do this, that, and the other. And again, Jesus says something that's shocking. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, they would have understood that, I think, a little bit better than us. And some of us in this room who have had agriculture in our background, I'm not sure that we would have been using a hand plow and following a, you know, a team of brace of, of oxen or, or uh, uh, donkeys or, or horses pulling a plow. But if you've driven a tractor plowing, you'll understand exactly what that means. Because if you're intending to go in a straight line and you look backwards for some reason, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have a crooked line. You're not going to end up where you thought you were going. And so they understood completely. So what is Jesus saying at this particular point? I think he's saying in a similar way, there's a cost, but more so, it has to do with priorities. If you're going to follow me, there is a priority and it's me first. Everything else pales in its comparison. You know, Matthew had another, his version of this uh, when he has Jesus saying, if you love your mother and father and brother and sister more than me, you're not fit for the kingdom. 
uh, hard words to understand. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is he has to be number one in our lives. The disciple can't hang on to their old life and be prepared for the rigors of discipleship. Um, True growth as a disciple takes discipline. You know, I used to explain to people my Christian walk when I was younger. Um, A lot of you maybe use the, the phraseology or the image of ups and downs. You know, when you're up as a disciple in times when you have downs. I compared mine to my golf game. It was into the rough, into the rough, into the rough, into the rough. Eventually getting to the hole, but if it was a par five, I was looking at a par 12. I mean, it's just, I'm a horrible golfer. So, but it's the idea of, of having complete and utter devotion to growing as a disciple of Christ. So I'm going to close with this idea for each of us as we get to thinking about our walk with Christ. I would invite you to have a, a moment or two of just reflect on your journey now as a disciple, where it has taken you, how it has carried you, has it been easy, has it been hard, where is it going in light of Jesus' words of setting his face resolutely that nothing would turn him back as growing in Christ. Now this, it seems like maybe it's uh, spiritual irony or God's plan, but we started the month of February with a men's weekend, and our speaker spoke on discipleship to us guys. And great words, great things to think about. Next week, we're going to close out February with a, a weekend that focuses on discipleship. This will be for our youth. So I don't know what happened to the rest of us in between, ladies, but the idea of growing in Christ is great uh, for us to think about and to contemplate. But another thing I would throw out is an opportunity for us with uh, kind of pivoting off of Ash Wednesday. Uh, I dare say there are countless numbers of devotions online that you can find for the 40 days of Lent. Uh, Lee has been just great in, in promoting and prompting us to read the Bible four times a week or more, obviously, at least four times a week. I would invite you to do the same thing with Lenten devotions. Is spend 40 days. You're going to have to get caught up a little bit leading up to Easter as a part of your growing closer to God, growing closer to becoming like Christ, what he wants in us. Because I think what happens when we have those kinds of focused opportunities is he shows us where we have been growing, but he shows us areas where we need to grow more. And I'll close with this comment from one uh, author that says, the path to following Jesus is not a part-time job. It's a perpetual assignment. There's simply no moment when we're not on call. Let's pray for a moment, and then our ushers will come forward, and you contemplate your journey as a disciple of Jesus. Father, we do thank you that we have these opportunities to contemplate deep thoughts of what seem to be very easily understood verses, but they open up vistas of depth that we're maybe not aware of. We call you our Lord. We call you our master. We are growing, and yet we have much much growth before us. Help us, Lord, on our journey as disciples. In Christ's name.